Welcome to Monster Porn, Weird Fiction and Horror Podcast. The podcast less concerned with getting monsters out from under the bed, and more concerned with getting them into the sack. Rawr! Today's story is Wearing a Sheet Doesn't Make You a Ghost, by me, Brett Norwood. Happy Monday, Monster Baiters. That's all I've got. <laughs> well, that was a short message from Matt this week. What's the matter? Tokolosh got your tongue? <laughs> well, if you don't have any updates, let me give a shout out to uh, our Twitch friend, Lanterns. It's like, uh, oh, oh, Lanterns, oh, oh. Maybe like, ooh, Lanterns, ooh, spooky. I don't know. I probably should have asked before we mentioned him on the show. Anyway. Shout out to Lanterns on Twitch for promoting monster porn both on his stream and on Twitter. We love the love. We appreciate it. Uh, link to Lanterns' channel in the episode description. And if you're a Twitch streamer interested in syndicating monster porn on your channel, shoot me an email at infomonsterpornpodcast.com. I also want to give a shout out to artist and friend of the show, Marina, who goes by Toxic Heart Anime on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Etsy. She sent us a sample set of her line of art stickers. You can all check out what she sent us on our social media. She is a horror artist with a distinctive style, but I can detect an influence from Junji Ito in her work. That is, if Junji Ito were also a little cutesy. Anyway, thanks, Marina. We've got a few of them up right here in the studio. And speaking of artists, I want to say again uh, that we love seeing artists making interpretations of our characters. A while ago, we had Annie who goes by Annie Christ Superstar on Instagram and Twitter now, uh, who did the Pastress art a while back. That was awesome. Uh, and a week or two ago, we had <laughs> Mustafa the Lake Troll, kids with their screen names, also known as Slevin Klebra on Twitter, who did the iBat from our logo uh, in clay. Some of you listeners who just discovered us through Apple Podcasts or whatever and only hear the audio might not realize the visual culture that we're trying to build around monster porn. And in addition to our own stuff, I like to try and support other artists on social media, particularly Twitter, where we're connected with a lot of artists. Uh, anyway, point being, if you're an artist, connect with us and share your work. I love to see it. Inktober starts tomorrow, and if any of you masturbators are doing the Inktober thing, tell you what, tag us in your Inktober posts on Twitter and I'll give it a retweet. Has to be safe for work. Ish. Ish. We're not uh, complete Puritans, but... uh. <laughs> Matt is wearing the hat, the buckle hat. And I guess we are eating some roast turkey with some Native Americans. Shoot, I guess we are Puritans. <laughs> Matt, what the fuck were we talking about? Calvinism? I don't know, Brett. But I believe we were trying to start the show if you're done rambling forever. Where am I? What am I? Who am I doing? Uh -huh. Go home, Grandpa Brett. I think you're drunk. Okay, bye. Wait, Brett, it's your story this week. Are you ready to record our episode this week so we can satisfy our demon overlord and go on with our day? Oh, hey, Matt. No, no, I'm afraid I can't today because I'm on strike. 
I am participating in the climate strike. So instead of work or school... You don't go to school. No school perceptible to your senses. So instead of work or school, I am showing my unwillingness to participate in a broken and destructive system by staying home. With the air conditioning going and all the lights on in the house, the TV's going and your gas lawnmower's just running in the yard with no one attending it, do you have any idea what kind of carbon footprint you are creating right now? You forgot the private jet idling in the hangar. Plus, I'm going to the protest later, and I'm going to yell at people and carry a witty sign derived from an internet meme. Surely, everyone will love me and change their ways. You can't get people or things to change by yelling in the street. What happened to being the change that you want to see in the world, being disgruntled and skipping school, is just going to make enemies and alienate people. If you're that passionate about the issue, why don't you apply yourself towards actually working towards solutions? You know, like actually studying the problem, the science, and going into, I don't know, engineering or some relevant field? Uh, Perhaps you're right, Matt. I need to be results-oriented if I'm going to be passionate about the environment issue. Maybe instead of skipping... school... I should double down and go to real school. There you go. Go back to school. Identify the hurdles that stand in your way and overcome them. Hurdles. Yes. In particular, there is one person who stands in the way, Matt. One powerful personage who has been propped up by the powers that be and blockades my quest for what's right. It's like... It's almost like... Do you believe in supervillains, Matt? Oh, God. This is going to get political, isn't it? Who do you mean? Like a politician or the head of some big multinational corporation? The name of my arch-nemesis is Greta. Wait, what? The climate activist? That girl's on your side, isn't she? You're going to the climate strike, right? To protest climate change? Close, Matt. I'm attending the protest against the protest against climate change. I am becoming concerned that these wacko warriors are messing up the end of the world. I will not stand for human-caused global saving. But now you've inspired me, Matt, to stand up and actually do something for my cause, and not just be a pouty teenager scowling at the president. You're not a teenager. You're not the president. But now I must go to college and dedicate my life to excelling in my field and making solutions a personal responsibility. Thank you, Matt. Excuse me, I have work to do. Wait, uh... Oh, don't worry, Matt. I'll be back in about 56 minutes. Jesus. What kind of person becomes an activist to end the world? Where's Brett? He's supposed to be getting ready to go with me to protest the continued existence of this miserable rock. The Witching Hour. A midnight breeze stirs skating crackling leaves across the street. The lights of the neighborhood are universally out, and all is silent. The whirs and chirps of summer insects are gone. The only signs of life are the occasional headlights along the interstate in the distance, along the hill at the edge of town. The Indian summer is ending. As the clock's hand advances into the first morning minutes, the breeze blows with a new soft chill. The fallen leaves skitter, scraping across the asphalt. In addition to this, for a mere heartbeat, there is something like the sound of rattling chains, a small clinking jingle, and something like a bedsheet drifts, zigzagging down from on high. The bleached white linen 
lazily approaches and, at length, alights upon the pinewood battlements of a tree fort, catching on the head of a jutting nail and flailing like the flag of surrender before. Mere moments later, the wind lies down to rest for the night. Late afternoon, a repeated intermittent clack resounds through the ravine by the creek. Two boys, approximately thirteen, duel with wooden garden stakes as swords. One, in a baggy blue t-shirt that hangs off of his bony frame like a curtain, is breathing hard. The other, in a striped ringer tee, has the quay smirk of assured triumph on his face. Their sneakers slide around in a dance in the leaves and the dust. Damn it! The first kid shouts, as the other's wooden stake strikes his knuckles. As he stops to examine his hand, his opponent takes a cheap shot and pokes him hard in the ribs. Yeah! He cries. The other is laughing, and so is the girl on the tire swing. Don't be a sissy, Corin, the girl on the swing says. Corin glares. Yeah, don't be a sissy, Corin, the other boy, James, repeats and swipes at him with a spike. Corin catches it in his hand and stares him down. James kicks him in the gut, and Corin releases the stake and stumbles backward. He wants to ask whether James meant to hit his hand. It was dirty, and he suspects that he did. Instead, he walks over to the creek's edge, pouting and staring into the crystal water running shallow over glistening sand and pebbles. James, meanwhile, goes over to Addie. He says something, and she laughs. Corin thinks about running up the hill alone going to the backyard and sitting in the fort alone until James and Addie decided to come for him. After so many years of playing pretend in that fort, with his friends, since his dad built it when he was four, it had now become a sort of clubhouse for his friends to talk and play adolescent party games like Truth or Dare or Cold Wind Blows, away from parental control. A few weeks ago, James and Addie had come over with Ashton and Charlotte and Chloe and Logan and played a game where they sat in a ring, and the person singled out in the center had to steal someone else's seat by making the victim laugh or smile. Then that person was in the middle and had to pick someone else to crack. When Chloe was it, she had picked Corin. She sat in Corin's lap, took off her glasses, and stared deeply into his eyes. Then she made like she was going to kiss him, drawing in slowly to his face while everyone else oohed and awed. He couldn't stop the nervous laugh from coming out, and the moment was over. He wondered what would have happened if he hadn't laughed. Instead of retreating to pout, Corin walks over to the swing to join Addie and James. Corin, Addie commands. Push me. He wants to punish her for laughing at his injury, but he gives in and pushes her. Addie and James had both been a little different towards him since that last time in the tree fort. Addie seemed simultaneously needy of his attention while also slightly bitter toward him. James had become a bit of a bully and also trailed everywhere at Addie's heel. A little later, walking back up the hill to the yard, they see the tree fort. The whole thing is lofted off the ground and pierced through by a cottonwood. It has two sections, a lower open gallery or wall walk with a likeness of battlements, leads up by way of a couple steps into an enclosed keep with a shingled roof and window on each side, as well as two windows in the front on either side of the door of the keep. It resembles a skull with a severe underbite, the wall walk with the toothy crenellations 
making a jutted bottom jaw, and the four windows and door are forming two eyes and a nose hole. The two side windows could even be taken as ear holes. What the kids notice now, however, is the white sheet hanging limply from the pinewood crenellations. Surrender much? James asks Corin. Corin, nearly too grown up to use the wooden steps anyway, which lead from underneath up into the wall walk, and seeking to impress his friends, takes a running jump, catches and hangs off of the battlements, and then heaves himself over into the fortress. He stands in the skull's underbite and looks over the sheet. Someone's laundry, I bet, he mumbles. When he takes up the sheet in his hands, it feels cold, almost icy, and he attributes it to the dampness from last night's dew, or light frost if that were the case. He also finds it to be feather light. Perhaps it is silk or some other premium material. Wadding it up, he throws it down at James. James catches it and turns it over in his hands, before glancing at Addie, holding it up and shrugging. He holds it out for her to take. Ew, no, she says. Ew, James echoes. It's a sheet. Yeah, that's been who knows where covering who knows who, she says, crossing her arms. Uh, good point, James says, and he throws it back at Corin. Corin throws the balled-up sheet back into the keep and jumps down from the fort. Another Midnight Corin Comstock lies awake, torn between the childish fear of monsters concealed in sense-oppressing darkness, and the full-grown fear of loneliness and despair. As a little kid, he'd pretend that his bed was a futuristic fortress armed with lasers and missile batteries, sealed in bulletproof glass barriers or force fields. To feel less alone and vulnerable, he'd imagine that the gang from Scooby-Doo was there with him to combat the spooks and monsters and the first crush he could remember having was Daphne from Scooby-Doo. Now at thirteen, that fear of the dark is flagging, yet not fully left behind. But the more grown-up concerns of Addie and Chloe, and what they thought of him, and would he end up alone, these began to worm their way into his maturing mind instead. He begins to imagine a fantasy where Chloe sneaks into the window in the night, and crawls in and snuggles in next to him and he starts to fall asleep, and as he approaches sleep, his fantasy meanders farther and farther from its intent, and from making any sense. For a moment, he is mini-golfing and solving long-division problems, and Chloe has been replaced by Scooby-Doo. Not even Daphne, but Scooby-Doo. And Scooby accidentally swallows a golf ball and begins to choke as Corn panics and his eyes bolt open in bed. Corin throws his bare feet onto the cold floor. He lumbers into the kitchen, long chicken legs, still hairless, poking out beneath boxers and an oversized t-shirt. When he was little and he couldn't sleep, his mother would warm a teacup of milk in the microwave for a minute and give it to him. She said it would help him sleep. He didn't know about that, but the strange taste and mouthfeel of warm milk was somehow comforting. And now he prepares a cup for himself. While the microwave runs a minute, he pulls the box of saltines from the cupboard and eats a few by the dim light of the fixture over the sink. He sees his own reflection in the black window. He sees that he is still a child, really, 
small and scrawny without even the ghost of peach fuzz on his face, unlike a few of the boys in his class. Even James' voice had been beginning to change, and his legs are as hairy as a mammoth now. He eats a cracker and thinks about Addie, only briefly, before he sees a dull glow, like glow-in-the-dark paint or plastic, within the fort outside. Did one of his friends leave a phone or a watch out there? Did someone sneak out there in the night? Even if it is one of his friends, the idea of someone hiding out there at night without his knowledge creeps him out a bit. He doesn't know why. His curiosity is immense, but he isn't about to go investigate it right now. The mystery can wait until the morning. Corin takes his teacup from the microwave and returns to his room where he sips it slowly while reading by lamplight. Before school, Corin and James meet by James' locker. James stands up from his backpack and glances at Corin appraisingly. Then he looks down the hall at someone. Corin follows his gaze, and Chloe is packing up near her locker. Dude, James says. You should go for her. What? Corin replies. Really? Yeah, man. She tried to fucking kiss you. What are you, stupid? She likes you. Huh, Corin says. He's now avoiding looking at her, his face feeling a little warm. Hey, guys, Addie says, coming up behind Corin. What's going on? Corin now feels his face burn. James blurts out. Corin was just telling me who he's after. Oh, Addie says, straightening up and putting on a strange, mixed expression. Lips pouty. Eyes alert but appraising. She crosses her arms. Yeah, James tells her and points down the hall with his eyes. I can practically hear the wedding bells already. <laughs> what with how she tried to kiss him at the party. Oh, Addie says, gazing with half-lowered eyelids down the hall, now certain as the girl James meant. I didn't say... Corin begins, but he doesn't finish the sentence. Well, good luck with that, Addie says. I hear she's a skank. Addie turns and leaves. Corin socks James in the arm. What did you tell her that for? Corin says. What? James says. It's true, isn't it? You like Chloe? Corin looks between Addie and Chloe, both leaving down the hall without a glance back, and for very different reasons. Well, you're not wrong, Corin admits. After school, James finds Corin at his locker, opening, as if a reminder of how they had begun their day, with a punch in the arm. James's punch is one of excitement. Corin is angry for a fleeting second, until the fervor in James's expression infects him and he begins to smile. What is it? Corin asks him. James is downright beaming. You should ask Chloe out, James tells him. So you can have a date and come to the movie with Addie and I on Saturday. Corin stares at him blankly and blinks once. Corin asks incredulously, You and Addie are dating now? This is a weird development for Corin to wrap his mind around. Addie has been their friend for years now. Corin has known her since the third grade, and he introduced her to James in the sixth. 
It never really occurred to him that she and James would become a thing. Corin walks home like an advancing thunderhead. At least, that's how he sees himself, brooding and dark and dangerous, struggling with his feelings about this development, and a growing certainty that James played him today. When Corin reaches his house, he enters the backyard and heads straight for the tree fort. Within, he remembers last night and the glow, which he had forgotten since. There are some pillows and lawn chairs and a plastic patio table sawed down to be coffee table height. But he sees nothing that could be a source of light. And the only thing that is new is the sheet piled up in a lump in the corner where he discarded it. He wonders whether there is such a thing as a glow-in-the-dark bedsheet, and if so, why? Corin sits cross-legged on a pillow in the middle of the keep. He fidgets with a box of cards left on the table, but quickly tosses it aside. Then he seizes the sheet, and in a tantrum pulls it over his head and wrings it around his neck like the linen covering the face of a hanged man. He takes it off immediately and looks at it in his hands. It had been cold, so very cold, and see-through when up close to the eye, like the fabric inside some Halloween masks. He smells it. It doesn't smell gross. He throws it over himself. The world is doused in muted white, and he feels like he is floating through the beam of afternoon sunlight coming in the western window. He feels like he's in a refrigerator. The shadows in the keep shift like reflections on the surface of a pond. Corin sinks slowly through the floor of the keep. He doesn't even notice it at first, but eventually he's floating outside below by the trunk of the tree. He looks at it, and it's teeming with black, hairy things like caterpillars with big white eyes, and he's sort of rotating slowly in the air. He tries to put his feet on the ground. This straightens him out, as if standing, except that his soles don't quite reach the earth. It feels like repelling magnets. Corin rips the sheet off his body with a gasp and is immediately dumped onto his butt on the ground. The direct sun warms his clammy skin. He stares at the sheet with wide eyes. Moments later, he's pulling it back over himself, tentatively. He glides to the back of the house and, hovering by the AC unit, he puts out a hand toward the siding. He isn't sure what to believe. He wants to believe it will work. But when he puts forth his fingertips and finds less resistance than the surface of a body of water, he doesn't believe what his senses are telling him. His hand passes into the wall. He withdraws it and repeats the same experiment several times. Then, having established faith a little greater than a mustard seed, he boldly steps into the house without using the door. The siding and framing and interior drywall all sort of vibrate around him, or perhaps he is the one vibrating. He hasn't imagined clearly what interior location in the house this section of wall by the AC unit will correlate to. He instinctively supposes he will arrive in the kitchen. Instead, he is just north of the kitchen wall and ends up in the bathroom where his mother is buck-naked getting into the tub. He yells. His mom looks up vaguely, and her eyes dart around the room without settling on anything in particular. Corin tumbles out into the backyard. He tears the sheet off, panting and feeling gross. Corin balls up the sheet and runs into his bedroom. He shoves the sheet into a rubber-made tub in the bottom of his closet 
that contains some of his old toys. He shuts the closet door and stands there, thinking. Corin lies in bed in the evening. There's a dull pale green glow coming from the closet around the door. He is making a show of restraint, if only to demonstrate the restraint to himself. Suddenly, he throws off the covers and places his feet on the floor. Moments later, he is flying down the street. He passes a car. The driver doesn't seem to see him, the person going down the sidewalk two feet off the ground and glowing green under a bedsheet. Corn flies through the thick trunk of a cottonwood tree, just because he can, and he laughs with satisfaction. Half a block down from his house, there's Miss Hampstead's house. She's a recent divorcee of just shy of 40. James says his parents say she's gotten too fond of wine. What Corin notes is how fond she's become of the gym, and that he's seen her doing yard work in an overwhelmed sports bra. The porch light is out when he gets there. He sifts through her closed front door as easily as tap water passes through a colander. The interior is dark, save for the frenetic colored flashes of the television reflected off the wall dead ahead. As he drifts from the entryway into the living room and turns to his right, the back of her head is there against the backrest of the leather sofa. In front of her, some police procedural adults like so much plays. Corin stops behind her, over the crown of her head, and looks down on her. She's topless in sweatpants, but this is no reward to Corin. The first thing he sees is her breasts, yes, but he quickly fixates on the rolls of her stomach and that she smells sweaty in a way that reminds him of his father, and he finds her disappointing. When she sniffles, it startles him. He leans farther over to see her face and finds she isn't watching TV at all. She's crying. Corin feels dirty and let down all at once. He drifts hastelessly from the house. Corin passes through the neighbor house. He doesn't know who lives there. He enters through the glass of the kitchen slider and wanders from the dining room into the living room. The lights are on, but no one's home. He passes through the front door and onto the street where he continues following the sidewalk. In front of another house, he sees the dining room light on and a young wife hurries by, getting his attention. She turns out the light as she passes. Corin drifts up to the glass and then through it. He's in a dining room with a fake wood table that smells like they had cheap pizza and wings an hour ago. He follows after the woman. The light is on in the kitchen. He finds her in front of the sink, leaning on the counter. There's something else to the smell of the house, he notices. Something musky and bitter. Yet something which he has smelled in combination with pizza before. Something from a restaurant. Cora notices the line of cans on the countertop by the sink. Beer. It's beer. When the man shouts, Corin starts and spins in the air. Maria! He shouts and grabs her shoulder, forcing her to turn. She tries to swat his arm off of her. Don't touch me! She yells. No, you're not listening to me! He insists. Get your hands off me, Dean! She spits. You're being a cunt, he says. She slaps him. He shoves her into the middle of the kitchen. 
Corin pulls up the edge of the sheet and exposes his hand. Suddenly there is a pointing finger floating in Dean's face. He stops and stares, the color draining from his face. He goes cross-eyed, looking at the disembodied hand. And Corin can swear that his ears, which stick out like chimp ears, wilt a little bit. Maria has seen it too. Her mouth hangs open. Corin tries to deepen his childish voice and says, You are watched. Behave yourself. Dean gets real quiet and real serious. Who, who are you? I am the hand of God, Corin says, poking Dean in the forehead to punctuate the words I, hand, and God. His eyes cross even more, trying to track the finger as it pokes him. Maria has started whimpering. Dean, oh Dean, what is it? Dean, oh Dean, we're being judged. Are you? Dean sputters. An angel? Corin reaches and grabs Dean's nose, saying, Honk! And then swiftly retracts his hand under the sheet as Dean's anger and color floods back into his face and he swings and connects with only air, as if trying to swat a nuisance fly. Oh God, Dean! Maria whispers. I can see him. He's standing right there. It's a... it's... It's a fucking ghost! Corin turns to Maria at the report of his visibility. Indeed, her eyes track his face now. He is seen. Feeling his advantage dissipated, Corin turns back to Dean. Dean is still looking through him, searching the air. Don't be shitty, or I'm coming back, Corin says, and he flies from the house. Corin careens through the air in a little dance, giggling to himself, weaving through the trees and skirting roof peaks and chimneys. He's like a goddamned superhero. I can help people, he thinks. I have the power to find things that are wrong and make them right. He soars up high into the night air and does a flip and descends like a diver back to the neighborhood, dropping right into someone's roof. Corin passes through several homes and finds each at peace, with their inhabitants asleep. He's beaming. He's imagining that he's the silent protector of these families, keeping watch in the night. The only thing displeasing to him in the moment is the persistent cold, wearing deeper into him all the time, which he didn't notice so much while he was in Dean and Maria's kitchen. But now that he's alone again, and things are quiet, Corin finds himself in a child's room. He drifts toward the twin-sized bed and leans over a small girl, maybe five years old, tucked in to a puffy comforter with a floral pattern. She is sound asleep, completely insensible as to the world around her, and her face is serene. Corin detects a presence from the corner of his eye and his gaze bolts up to the child's closet. In the open door, there is one just like him. A person under a sheet, face hidden but vaguely suggested in the lay of the fabric, which glows dull green, just like him, only this figure is taller, and bound under the sheet in heavy chains. Corn starts but then stares stupidly. He feels terror rising in him and, no longer protector but again a child himself, he gives in to the fear and flies through the wall and down the street, no longer wanting a part in the world of the night. He flies up high to get away from dark closets and corners below, which he now believes may hide horrors as real as himself. 
searching from the empty sky for his own home to make the most direct line for it possible. That's when he sees something coming through the air. A thing large and black and snake-like, shimmering on the horizon. It's getting nearer, and is quickly becoming larger, and he can tell whatever it might be, it is large. Completely black, it is no plane. The size of a plane, it is no bird. Corin flees down, again, to earth, and enters a house at random. In a house full of porcelain knick-knacks, scented candles, and family photos in vintage department store frames, an elderly woman sits in a rocking chair with her eyes down. She may be asleep. A single antique lamp burns on the end table beside her, where a Reader's Digest anthology sits open. She is covered in a homemade afghan. Corin plans to go through the south end of her house and into the neighbor's house, and to hop houses the rest of the way back home. But as he moves for the hallway to the dark end of the house, he hears a voice. Who are you, then? Corin sees the woman is looking right at him. You can see me? He wonders. My husband still visits me sometimes, she says, with a crackly voice. I reckon I'm accustomed to it. You're a young one, aren't you? What's your name, son? Corin, he says. In that moment, it doesn't occur to him to make something up. I'm Ginny, she tells him. I'm sorry it happened to you so young. Do you want to talk about it? It takes Corin a second to realize she is asking about his death. Instead of answering her question, he says, I'm sorry about your husband. He's like me now? Mmm, she tones. You need not worry about him or me. He's well, and he is finding his rest. I hope that you find yours, Corin. Thank you, Corin stutters. I'm sure you'll find it, she says. It just takes time. It, it all takes us time, that's all. As Corin heads down the dark hall, he hears her say after him, You are welcome in my house any time. Corin makes it home without further incident. In his dark bedroom, after clearing his own closet and under the bed and glancing down the hallway, he tears off the enchanted sheet and shoves it back into the old toy bin and closes the door on it. He shuts his eyes tight in bed and draws the covers high. Like a little child, he feels like playing ostrich with his head in the sand will keep him safe against the things that go bump in the night. What he can't see won't hurt him. As soon as his head is covered, he knows he doesn't believe it. There's a difference between when you're a child and you're hiding your head from some nightmare you suspect is wholly your own make-believe, and hiding your head from something you now know to be real. Now, the blindness compounds the terror, and Corin has to take his head out to be able to see the room. For an hour, he can hardly shut his eyes without them popping open to scan his surroundings again. Then he realizes that he probably can't see what he fears without the sheet, and his eyes go to the dull glow seeping around the closet door. He shakes, sitting up and hugging his knees in bed for another ten minutes. 
He questions himself. Does he really want to know if he's not alone? If it followed him and hasn't hurt him yet, maybe not knowing is better. But it's not. The question is really, can he handle the knowledge if it's there? If, if ghosts are real, he tells himself, then aren't they just people? And I'm not afraid walking down the street of accidentally running into a random person, so what difference does it make if the person is a, a ghost? He has trouble thinking of the word ghost, seriously. Having talked himself up with this reasoning, he decides to look through the cloak, and if he is truly alone, maybe he can rest. Corin tiptoes across to the closet, as if it matters to be sneaky. He scoots open the sliding door as quietly as he can and pulls the glowing sheet from the Rubbermaid toy tub without raising his eyes to the dark spaces of the closet. He sits back from the closet onto the carpet and looks around. His hands are shaking, clutching the sheet, and his heart is pattering like skipping stones. He opens up the sheet between his fists. The thought that there could be, at that very moment, an unseen hand reaching for him forces him to do it. He holds up the fabric to his eyes and gazes through. He glances around spastically. Ahead of him is clear. He immediately checks the closet. It's clear. Even the dark, far corner. Looking into the room, he sees that it is clear around his bed and the large curtained window above it. The door into the hallway is also clear. Calming, he turns again to gaze across the room, leaning back with his palms against the carpet. His eye is drawn to a dull glow between the curtains of the window, which he hadn't noticed a moment ago. His heart races again and he sits up. Near the top, where the curtains part, he can see but a small section of a shrouded head. Corin leaps to his feet and falls backward, loudly against the closet door. What's more, through the curtain, now he can discern faintly the soft glow of two more figures by the first's sides. Shorter. The three of them hover, immaculately still. Corin arranges the sheet over himself. With his hands jerking around, it is far more struggle than it should be to get himself covered with the sheet and have it lay straight around him. Keeping his eyes on the window, he stumbles back toward the wall and flies through it, back out into the night. A few minutes later, Corin hovers outside of a second-story window. Corin plunges into James' bedroom and yells out, James! James rolls over in bed. Stupid cat. He grumbles and chucks a tennis shoe across the room, which hits the side of his gaming computer and falls into the trash can. Corin rips off the sheet. James! He shouts, and James shoots up in bed. What the hell, man? He yells, loud enough that a tired shout comes from somewhere else in the house. Language James! James flips on the bedstand light and stares. When did you get here? He whispers. I just got here, Corin says. You just waltzed in? What if I was pulling the python? Rubbing the slug, I mean making out with Addie. I have to show you something, Corin tells him. Fine, what is it? Better be good. Corin pulls the sheet over. James stares blankly as if determining whether he can trust his senses before betraying a reaction. Uh, what just happened? James mutters. Where'd you go? I'm here, Corin says. What's that? Your voice is really faint, dude. 
What is this shit? Corin puts his hand out. You can see it, yeah? Uh, yeah, James says, growing incredulous. What am I looking at? Corin puts a finger up to indicate he should just wait, and James watches that hand drift toward the window. It vanishes a moment and then reappears on the other side of the glass and taps. Corin comes back inside and pulls off the sheet, staring expectantly. James strings the words together slowly. Clearly, I'm dreaming or shit. But that's awesome. The light still burns in Addie's bedroom. She sits in front of a child-sized vanity she has outgrown that has lights up and down the sides of the mirror as she applies lipstick and studies herself. She smiles nicely and tosses her head from side to side, and then she scowls. And it is almost comedy to see this nearly pretty face suddenly turn to a childish and unflattering glare. Her iPhone is playing music. A girlish voice with a French accent sings to a synth-pop song, and the lyrics are humorously fitting to the scene. I'm doing my face with magic marker. I'm in my right place. Don't be a downer. Addie fights the sour feeling growing in her and makes a kissy face toward the mirror. Having always been a quasi-tomboy, she struggles to take herself seriously, and this makes her more upset. Faintly, she can hear a small girlish snicker that stops her cold. She searches the mirror with wide eyes, and seeing nothing, whips around on the stool and examines the room. She is alone. Addie recomposes herself and turns back to the mirror. That's how ridiculous I look, she thinks. I can already hear the girls laughing at me. That's when her lipstick picks up from the vanity all by itself and begins scrawling childish blood-red letters across the mirror. It begins with a U and then an R. Addie's backing up from the vanity, horror contorting her mouth into a wide, toothy grimace. Your music is dumb, it says. Addie begins to scream, but suddenly there is a hand over her mouth. In the mirror, all she sees is the hand on her face. It is attached to nothing. And then James and Corin are standing behind her. It is Corin's hand. His eyes are wide. James doubles over laughing. After ten minutes of explanations, apologies, and whispered yelling, James is sitting on the edge of Addie's bed, while Addie stands with crossed arms assessing Corin's demonstration of the ghost sheet her wrath slowly being replaced by playful curiosity. You can see me then? Corn asks her. Yeah, I can now, barely, she says. I couldn't see you at all at first. It's like, it's, it's hard to explain exactly. Have you ever watched an airplane really far away in the sky, and it's hard to see? But if you know where it's at and you focus, you can see it but then it's really easy to lose track of it, and then it's hard to find again. That's kind of what you seem like. It's weird. When I know where you're at, I can make myself see you pretty clearly. And you look ridiculous like you have the lamest Halloween costume ever. But then if I look away or stop thinking about you, I have to find you again. Yeah, it's weird. Addie looks at James for a second and then asks Corin, What's it like? Can I... Can I try it? As she puts it on, she mutters to drive it home one more time. I can't believe you assholes snuck into my room like that. She disappears. Oh, 
It's cold, she says. And then, how do I look? Oh, much better now, James says with a chuckle. Something invisible hits him hard. Can you see me? She asks. Yes, Corin says. He can see her clearly, and she's asking him, particularly, this. I can't, James says. Oddly, it takes putting the sheet over her, for Corin to see the womanly curves her body has taken on. The body he had just assumed to be boyish, like her personality. But now he can see her general shape, isolated from everything else. James starts as she unexpectedly grabs him and shakes him. Ah, what's she doing to me now? He wonders with mild alarm and a worried smile. Corin sees that Addie has grabbed James's head and is humping it. To Addie and James, it is just a novelty, a toy. Corin has so far failed to convey any of the fear that has come with it. But he has what he wanted, company and distraction, and he is loath to ruin it. But as they sit in a circle on the floor, softly lit by Addie's reading light, cross-legged around the bunched-up sheet, the questions and speculation are pushing him toward unburdening everything, and, eventually, becoming a little visibly agitated, he does. That's nuts, dude, James says when he's done. You, you think... you think it followed you? And you came here? Addie whispers angrily and slaps Corin's shoulder. You're joking, right? In my defense, I didn't know this before I suggested we come here, James says. I wish I were, Corin says to Addie. I'm sorry. They all stare at the sheet, as if they're thinking the same thing, a more subdued form of where Corin had just been. They want to know whether they are alone, but they are terrified to know. Hella creepy, Addie says after a minute, her voice dark. I don't like this. Corin can see her shaking, subtly. She's trying to hide it, James too, like they're cold. Maybe it doesn't mean any harm, James says. Maybe it's just got some sort of unfinished business. That's what ghosts are supposed to be about, right? Could be, Corin admits. What if, what if he just wants your help? Addie says. Maybe you just have to find out what he wants, James says, turning to Corin. Corin is silent. Hell no, Addie says. Screw that. No, maybe James is right, Corin says. I mean, if ghosts are real, then they're just, like, people, right? Dead people? And people aren't that scary. I hate to say it, but you might just have to face this thing, James says. Wait, what are you doing? James then says to Addie after a few seconds. She has her phone out. Looking something up. Hold on, she says. What? Are you googling local exorcists? James says and he laughs. I'm looking up how to banish a ghost, she says. I found something on Pinterest about banishing spirits from the house with a sprig of sage. On Pinterest, James echoes. I thought you just said no screw that, Corin says. We're your friends. We've got your back, she says matter-of-factly without looking at him. I mean, we don't want to, but we do. Comes with the territory. 
This isn't a game, Addie, Corin tells her. We don't know what this ghost, I guess, wants or if it's dangerous. I know, she says, with enough of a grave creak in her voice to convince him she understands. She's still avoiding his eyes. Sage, James echoes. This is advice on how to get rid of a ghost from the internet. From Pinterest. I say we ask it whether it needs our help in order to rest, Addie says. As ghosts do. But the second shit goes off the rails, or if it does any creepy ghost bullshit, we banish its ass. Corin, you're in the sheet, the last line of defense. What does that mean? James said. It means I'm the slow runner you take on a hike with you in case of bears, Corin says. You're the one with the sheet and the one who got the ghost's attention, Addie says, finally looking at him across her brow. Well then, James says, dusting his hands like he's about to get to work. I don't suppose you have a sprig of sage or know where to get one at this hour? Forty seconds later, the three kids stand in the dark kitchen of Addie's house, lit subtly by a few rays from the orangish nightlight in the hall. Corn and James huddle at Addie's shoulders as she opens the cabinet where her parents keep the spices. She uses her phone light as she rummages through the various shakers, packets, and small bottles. Here, she whispers. She holds a spice shaker under the light in her pale hand. Uh, that's not a sprig. Not anymore, anyway, James says. Duh, is her retort. It's all the same thing, isn't it? It's sage. Do you think the spirit cares? James looks at Corin. Corin shrugs. Maybe it's like vampires and garlic, Addie suggests. Remind me where you got this. The internet? James mocks. Back in Addie's room, Corin turns just inside the door to Addie and says, Here. She hands him the shaker of rubbed sage. What are you doing? She asks him. James glances between them. I'm going back to my house to see if the ghost is still there. You don't have to come with me. She exchanges a look with James. You're not doing it alone, she says. Are you sure he just can't do it alone? James jokes. Without looking at James, she growls. Not helpful. Then she forces a smile at Corinne. Shortly, the three teens are standing in the tree fort, overlooking the night. Addie, wrapped in a parka, huddles near to James. To their side, Corin stands, invisible to James, dimly visible to Addie, in the sheet. See anything yet? James wonders at Corin. No, Corin answers. I wonder if I'll be able to see them like I can kind of see you, Addie muses through chattering teeth. Here. Corin says. He holds up the edge of the sheet toward them. James and Addie move under the sheet with Corin. Now the sheet only covers their heads and shoulders. God, it's chilly in here, James mutters, and then, man, I don't see anything like a ghost for miles. Maybe this is pointless. There is a distant crash as the train rumbles on the track, and though only Addie jumps, all of their hearts run wild and their heads turn down toward the edge of town where the tracks follow the interstate, and a few car lights can be seen cruising past the far hills. 
Jesus, James mutters. When they turn back, one shrouded figure stands in the middle of the lawn, facing the ford. Eddie gasps and grabs both boys' hands. No fucking way, James whispers urgently. And then, why, why is he chained like that? What do you want? Eddie calls down to the figure, forcing her warbling voice to carry. We'll help you if we can. Two more appear, drifting lazily from behind the hedge and behind the house, to draw up behind the first, at his shoulders. They are shorter than the first, and the one on the left seems to be a woman. There is a slight tinkle of chains, and the air is chilled further. It would look silly under different circumstances, these grown people standing still under sheets. Oh my god, Addie gasps. There are more. Corin can hear that she's breathing fast and erratically as more spirits trail out from around the house, behind trees, down the street, around the neighbor's house. There are dozens of them, all glowing dull green and drifting listlessly, silently toward the first. No. More than dozens. The soft tinkle of the chain links becomes a vast, subtle ocean of sound, receding into the distance. I don't like this. I don't like this. Addie is repeating over and over. James clears his throat. What do you want? We'll help you if we can. Addie is holding up the unlidded shaker of sage under the sheet. She is trembling so badly that it is spilling on their shoes. What are you doing? James whispers to her. I'm going to pour it in a circle around us, she says quickly. But then their attention is caught by an unexpected sound like a deep cough. It is the word you. They look at the lead spirit. You, you see us, he says slowly, and under some great strain, his voice deep and tarry. And as he vomits forth each word with effort, he articulates it with a listless, broad move of his body. Yet the movement of his mouth, if it moves, is hidden entirely beneath the sheet, which doesn't even stir with the trace of a breath. You see us, another echoes, a few rows behind, and in the same swaying, bending manner, as if he must contort his body to expel the words. Elvis. Another says, and a whole choir arises of the word. Hell. Rumbling through the ranks. Addie is pouring out the contents of the shaker around their feet. When the refrain peters out, the first ghost says, sickly, Teach us. Teach us? James repeats under his breath. Teach us. The spirit tries again. Teach us how. How the one broke the chains. Teach us. Teach. Another echoes. Help us, another says, and several more after him, as the first begins to advance on the fort, and the others with him, slowly. Oh, God, Addie begins to repeat. Time to fly, man, James says. Time to fly. I can't fly with both of you, Corn says. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, Addie chants, grabbing their arms. The ghosts are coming over the battlements, like a green glowing floodwater rising and pouring into the fort. But suddenly, all the spirits stop. 
What's happening? Addie wonders quickly. No, 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 the spirits begin to grumble. There is a chorus of slow, deep moans that spills through the mob as they listlessly turn and begin to drift the way they came, down into the yard and beyond until the last, straggling few disappear around the house. Addie is catching her breath. James is also panting. He grabs the empty shaker out of Addie's hand. Dude, do you think it was the sage? Addie erupts into laughter, nervous laughter mingled with the laughter of triumph and, perhaps, gone slightly crazy. She stops when she hears Corin say, No. Look. In the sky, something black is coming. The black waving thing that Corin had glimpsed at the horizon. What is that? Addie screams, and she screams it again. It appears like an enormous manta ray flapping in the sky, and comes to hover in front of the fort. Two fleshless skeletons disembark from its back, men without sinews held together by clamps and bolted steel plates that taken together resemble some sort of armor. Their crania are full of burning coals, a few of which spill as they lean and saunter forward and begin to climb the bulwark. One has a neon green mohawk like a Roman helmet. That one has a war axe across his back. The other has an enormous hammer. Corin tears the sheet from Addie and James and covers himself properly. Addie's cry is cut out as she asks him instead what he is doing. Being the bear bait, he calls and he flies into the air and, turning back, sees that he has the entirety of their attacker's attention. And Addie and James have none of it. As Corin flees through the air toward the ravine, he sees the two pursuers remounting their flapping ride and turning about. Corin dives into the stands of willows and cottonwoods that surround the creek in the basin and weaves through the trees. He thinks about ditching the sheet because maybe that's all they want, but he can't be sure. Maybe now that he's seen these things, these things will be with him until they do what they will with him, and if so, the worst part would be not being able to see his end coming. There is no good answer. What am I doing? He wonders. He recognizes that he has no plan. Neither does he have the slightest knowledge of how these things might be evaded, whether they even can be evaded. All he can do is speed through the spidery tree stalks along the creek, weaving through the willow boughs and keep going. I'm doing what I have to do, he thinks. He has to lead these things away from Addie and James. That much is obvious, even if there is nothing he can do for himself. Is this it, then? He wonders. Was that the last I'll ever see them? Eyes, glowing and round like owls, pop open in the trees to watch Corin pass. Corin rounds a thick cottonwood and stops to listen. He hears nothing. Looking up, he sees nothing in the sky, and he rises up to the branches to look around. There is only the night sky and his house far away with the tree that has the fort barely picked out against the hazy sky. Corin drifts back down and lights beside the creek. He waits and listens some more. All he hears is the babbling of the water, which is invisible to him in the dark. A pair of reflective animal eyes opens in the trees and watches him a moment before lazily fluttering shut. The silence endures for minutes, and though Corin still shakes, his heart is beginning to be lulled into a sense that his pursuers are gone. He drifts about in a slow circle, watching toward every side and seeing nothing through the trees but darkness. 
Corin only hears the tinkle of chains half a heartbeat before the dead weight falls on him from above. He finds himself in a net of chain links, which suddenly draws tight about him as he finds himself hoisted away from the earth. Pulled up from the trees, he is lifted onto the back of the giant winged creature like a fish hauled up into a boat over the side by a fisherman, and the mohawked hunter's bony fingers dance over him, his face hovering eyelessly over his own, seething through his orbitals and jaws. With a click, the lock is fastened, and the captor kicks Corrin overboard again. As the manta ray soars through the night air toward the west, Corrin hangs upside down by his chains, swathed in his sheet, dangling, unable to move in the cold, whooshing air. The creature flies and flies until Corrin has long since lost track of familiar ground beneath him. In some mountains, a dark edifice waits in the night, looming high with spires that look organic. It could be compared to the Sangrada Familia of Barcelona, if Corrin had known to make the comparison. In the black towers, the stained windows glow soft red, his captors fly him straight through the maw of the open double doors. The sanctum of this black cathedral is a circle, not a rectangle, and the tiers of pews, full of green glowing and chain-bound deceased, face center, where a bottomless darkness yawns. Those spirits nearest the center are paler, transparent. As the creature flies him in, Corin watches as a pale ghost falls, limply, passively into the void, leaving a vacant seat in the front pew that is dutifully taken by one from behind. There is a reverent hum. Through the aisle, a dog-headed man passes, swinging a censer. The captors drop Corin into a vacant spot in the pews far back. He writes himself and gazes ahead into the waiting void. The ghostly choir moans. A bell rings. done it. What? I've graduated. I've attained three undergraduate degrees, two graduate degrees, and a doctorate. That was... that was fast.
Yes, I did it all online. It took 56 minutes. And now, goddammit, my plan to end the world better well succeed because I'm 130 grand in debt. By Jove, I will end this planet. How, how did you learn how to usher in the apocalypse in college? In college? Oh, no, 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 no. College is worthless. I figured it out in my downtime. So you figured out how to end the world. Are you sure you don't want to rethink this? Oh, yeah, living sucks. See this lever? Uh, yeah. This device releases a chemical known as Super CO2 into the atmosphere by the gigatons. Super CO2? What is that, a greenhouse gas? You're just going to speed up the heating of the Earth? Yes. Well, uh, marginally. Because the science shows the amount of climate variation correlated to anthropogenic CO2 emissions to be less than the margin of error when you account for the difficulty in assessing such an abstracted calculation as global temperature, using a selection of measuring stations scattered around the surface of a highly variable planet. You see, Matt, I actually read the science instead of yelling in the street, thanks to you. No, the super CO2 will just send the climate activists into a frenzy and they will raise political tensions in this social environment that is already a tinderbox, and the resulting civil war seven years in the future will wipe humanity off the whoring bum of the earth. <laughs> Hashtag science. Brett, don't! Ha-ha! <laughs> now we wait. Oh, God help us. If only more of those climate activists had individually made it a personal responsibility to hunker down and pursue practical problem-solving skills revolving around the sound science, like, like Brett... But, but while they were skipping school and yelling at people and preaching fire and brimstone about the end of the world, the climate annihilators got to it first! <laughs> Disclaimer! Brett is not a climate scientist. Your survey of the literature may vary. Monster Porn Podcast recommends that each listener form their judgment through constructive discourse and grounded, observable reality rather than taking it from people like, like us talking on the internet! Well, like bread, really. Monster Porn Podcast is a production of people we do not name, working in secret, in concert, in secret places, in order to do things that are unmentionable. Okay, fine, I'll tell you. They're mentionable. Knitting. We did knitting. I made a tea cozy. See you next time. Good day, Monsterbaiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, first, is it getting hot in here or is it just Mother Earth? That whore. And second, be sure to subscribe and leave Monster Porn a review on your preferred podcast app. It only takes a minute and helps us out a great deal. If you like things that suck, kid, you are in the right place. Check out our vampire special if you haven't already, episode 33 in our normal feed. And if that's not enough sucking for you, hold on to that appetite for October Pod's Dracula themed special, Once Upon a Time in Transylvania. 
due out later this month, which will feature an original story by yours truly. Connect with Monster Porn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Shout out to Monsterbaiter Eric Paulson for sharing memes on our Facebook page. Clearly, your sense of humor gets our sense of humor, which should be frightening to you. That's it. If you've had the courage to make it this far, stay weird. And until the shark angels come, Godspeed, Strange Cowboy. Disclaimer. Brett is not a client scientist. Client scientist. Client scientist. Okay. One more time. Preaching fire and brimstone about the end of the world, the climate annihilators got to it first. God, that was long. (laughs) I've graduated. I've attained three undergraduate degrees. Two graduate degrees. Why is it hard to say? Graduate degrees. Graduate degrees. You're going to go on a climate strike, right? To pro... Procrest. Protest climate change. Damn noisy coat. Procreate climate change. There's a different kind of cloud seating. <laughs> As he stops to examine his hand, his opponent takes a sheep shot. Sheep shot? Meh. 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 Yeah! He cries. That was too much, Brett. Are you Googling local terrorists? Terrorists. Exes. <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs>